Does your nonprofit organization need to raise more money? Work with the leading teach to fish consulting firm, Petrus Development. Check us out at PetrusDevelopment.com. Welcome to the Holy Donors Podcast. Join Andrew, Matt, Ren, and me, Thaddeus, as every week we bring you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. So, Andrew, you ready to get started? Can't wait. When you just add up what John Raskob did, like he's a Hall of Famer in like three different divisions. (laughs) You don't really see that. Like he's a triple threat. Great businessman, great philanthropist, great political figure. But almost nobody's ever heard of this guy. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, American life experienced enormous economic, social, and cultural transformations at the hands of men who, depending on one's point of view, earned the titles of captains of industry or robber barons. The most famous of them remain household names to this day. Andrew Carnegie, John J. Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, and Henry Ford. Behind them was a second tier of industrial titans, while of significant wealth and influence at the time, whose names are less well-known today. These are men like Gustavus Swift, Cornelius Vanderbilt, or Pierre Dupont. And finally, a host of others whose names have been forgotten in the sweep of time and events, but who, nevertheless, gave us in large or small measure the world we know today. Our new season is about one of these forgotten men. Without his financial genius, General Motors would have been just a blip in our reality. DuPont Chemical would have just been another small company and never one of the world's leading chemical firms. Because of this man, the Empire State Building exists. A man who through his sheer drive willed things into being. A man of financial genius like no other in his time. A man who went from working as a small-time stenographer to one of the richest men in the world. He went on to start one of the first ever Catholic foundations, and he changed the world of philanthropy as we know it. Even after his death, his generosity and his love of the Catholic faith continues to change the world for the better. It is my privilege to introduce someone who I didn't even know before, but now consider to be a freaking genius, John Raskob. (laughs) Wait, Matt, can you say that on the air? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, everybody, Andrew Robinson here. It is my pleasure to be with you today for this show. So, Andrew Robinson, I am owner and president of Petrus Development. I'm also the host of the Petrus Development Show, another podcast you can find, and I am an organizer of great men and women who are telling the story of some amazing people throughout history. With me here in studio, I've got Matt Bond. Matt is a professional fundraiser, development director for Working for the Church, and thrilled to have Matt with us here. Glad to be here, Andrew. Great. I've also got Dr. Thaddeus Romanski. Thaddeus is with Red Sea Catholic Radio, who is providing us with the studio space for this show. And Thaddeus is also a professional historian, and he knows a lot of stuff about a lot of stuff. So we're uh, thrilled to have you him. Are, you are too kind, Andrew, but this is awesome to be uh, to be back in the saddle talking about American history and from a Catholic perspective uh, is just great. So thanks for the opportunity. Excellent. And you may hear a little bit from him, but 
Ren Hain is executive producer of this show, and he is going to be keeping us all in line, making sure that our sound is coming through fine, and making us all sound, hopefully, a little bit smarter. So thanks, Ren. Thanks for having me here, Andrew. Glad to be with you. Great. So now, with that, this team assembled here today is going to be spending the next couple of episodes talking to you about John Raskob. So, Matt? He's the freaking genius, not Andrew. Let's <laughs> clarify that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Thanks for the clarification. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was important for our audience. So I'm excited to t- start talking about John Raskob. Here's a guy who very few people have ever heard of, mm-hmm. yet he played such a huge role in our corporate history. He was the man behind the man. But more importantly, though, his philanthropy in life and after his death has transformed our world and the Catholic faith. So without Raskob, we wouldn't have GM, the Empire State Building, DuPont Chemical Company, Al Smith, and the DNC. Yeah, the DNC, to clarify for our listeners, that's the Democratic National Committee that you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So Al Smith, the former governor of New York, was friends with Raskob. And he asked him to be his campaign chair and chair the DNC. That's right. So the DNC at the time was really only used the year leading up to an election, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Until Raskov came along, that's how they did it. Kind of left them behind the eight ball when it came to the Republican side of the election. Mm-hmm. And John basically set up a fund that allowed them to run the DNC year round. But he fails at getting Al into the White House. He's hammered by Herbert Hoover in 1928 and then fails to even get the Democratic nomination in 32. And I know we intro this man, John Raskob, as kind of the man behind the man and gets great things done. But in the case of his political career, he wasn't successful with Smiths. But he did change the course of history with establishing the DNC and helping FDR, even though he was competition— getting to the presidency in 32, and he helped change the course of history. Al Smith then goes on and becomes the president of the Empire State Building, which we'll hear more about that here in a future episode. Mm -hmm. And after his death, a foundation is started that starts a groundbreaking work for what will ultimately be Raskob's greatest legacy, his own foundation. Yeah. Sorry, we kind of jumped right into the middle of Raskob's story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we did, but like we said in the beginning— This is an amazing story about an amazing man, and we want people to know who John Raskob is and why we should care about him. So I think that it's helpful to unpack kind of where he fit into the landscape of American history. But for our listeners' sake, how about we go back to the beginning so the listeners can really understand where John started and how he got to where he was. So I think the best place to start is where he came from. So John Raskob was born in Lockport, New York on March 19th. 1879 to John and Anna Francis Raskob. Yeah, Lockport at that time was a bustling town when his grandfather immigrated there from Germany. And as a town on the Erie Canal and the location of what was known as the Flight of the Five Locks. So Lockport went from basically being a village to being transformed into a thriving, you know, commercial town by the completion of the Erie Canal in 1825. And so what this did is after the canal's opening, Midwestern farmers, they're not sending their goods to market down the Mississippi River to New Orleans. That was the major Mm. point of export. Instead, they start using really almost immediately this faster and cheaper canal to send their produce to New York City. 
It's the canal that led to New York City replacing Baltimore and Philadelphia and even New Orleans as the nation's foremost commercial port and market of exchange by the middle of the 19th century. Another thing, so John Raskob, his grandfather was the family member who came over, and he came over as a cigar maker. Mm-hmm. And then his grandpa taught his dad how to roll cigars because you had all these little artisan shops where parents in the garage, or that's what I imagine in my, my head, it, it was in their garage, would roll the cigars, and then they would sell it and make a pretty decent living at it. And that's so right. his granddad passed along that to his son, which was John's dad. Mm-hmm. But John's dad didn't pass along how to roll cigars to his son. Oh, okay. Interesting. So, so Porque did his dad not teach John how to roll cigars? He didn't teach his... Wait, Porque, huh? <laughs> he was trying to ask you why. Why did he not? Why so did why did he not? He was throwing a, trying to trip you up. Uh, he, very good. <laughs> his dad didn't teach him how to roll cigars because they realized that there was no future in Lockport, that it was it was going downhill and it was going downhill fast. Hmm. His dad was struggling to make a living to support his family at the time, and he knew that if he passed along to John that he would as well. So he never taught him how to do it. John never smoked after that, and he never learned how to roll cigars. Yeah, and that fits with the sort of general history of that area too, Matt, was what the Erie Canal did is that over the decades, these villages that turned into towns that then turned into small cities is you get this domestic manufacturing, such as making cigars in the family home, starts to get replaced by factory-style production. And you start to have machinery replacing you know, the human hand. And so, yeah, this, so this is a part of the industrialization of the United States. And not only that, we have the five locks being replaced by trains at this point in history. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're coming up on that for sure. So one of the things that I think was pretty cool in our research is we discovered this book that was written about John Raskob, biography on him, written by a, a historian named David Farber. And the book is called Everybody Ought to Be Rich. It's a great book. Go check it out. It's easy to read. It's fun to read. It's got a lot of details about John Raskob's life. But in that, Farber really kind of unpacks what's at the core of John Raskob, kind of what made him tick, and how some of these early experiences in his childhood really set him up for success down the road that we talked about, you know, with Al Smith, with the Empire State Building, it all kind of started right at this time. And so let's listen to this clip with David Farber. It's always hard to know what drives a person to achieve greatness. And certainly with John Raskob, even when he was a little boy, he's just one of those guys he just wanted to do. He, he just had that drive from an early age. And some of it, I think, is the immigrant experience. And probably being a, a Catholic, half Irish Catholic, who was sort of up against it, you know, don't forget this is a time when a boy like him was excluded from a lot of life, was was not supposed to become an important figure in American life. He was facing a lot of anti-Catholic sentiment, a lot of anti-Irish sentiment. So I think that drove him as well, that he was as good as anybody else. And he was raised that way by his family to feel that way. So he had that raw talent. But I think what made him amazing was he he was able to align that talent with this, this incredible drive, an incredible sense of confidence. Where the heck did that come from? And I think it drew people 
to him. I mean, it drew Catholic leaders to him. It drew corporate leaders to him. It drew political leaders. To him. They all got a huge kick out of this little guy. He's a small guy. He's like five, 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 six, not physically imposing. Uh, he just had some sort of incredible charisma about him that drew people. So, I mean, I think that's pretty fantastic. And, you know, we learned later that John had a motto in life. Yeah, yeah. He had this motto, which to me is unbelievable. In, in everything that I learned about John Raskop, this is the thing that stuck with me the most. And it was this, go ahead and do things. The bigger, the better. If your fundamentals are sound, avoid procrastination. Do not quibble for an hour over things which might be decided in minutes. However, if the issue at stake is large, stay as long as the next man, but go ahead and do it. Yeah, sounds like John was kind of a get stuff done kind of guy. He was. And what was amazing is even though he was in Lockport in a time that it was going downhill pretty quick, he realized that this was a part of who he was and it didn't hold him back. Mm. I mean, there's this great story that when he was 12... He took a job delivering newspapers, which was also an adult job, but he was 12 years old doing it. And so he, he delivered these newspapers, and it wasn't enough for him. He strong-armed his boss to give him another route. And so here was this 12-year-old doing more work and more routes than adults that were doing the exact same thing. <laughs> well, like you said, do things and the bigger the better, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So this is a show about holy donors, right? So presumably we're highlighting people that have strong faith, right? So what was John's faith like growing up? Yeah, absolutely. You know, his faith as a kid was very important to him. And a lot of what we have to go off of to tell his story or, or his stories of what he did. And I think there's a, an awesome story. I love it. That really clarifies his life and his faith life as a kid. He wrote to a friend that he had went to a party that just happened to be in the middle of Lent. And so he's talking about these good-looking girls that were there, but he couldn't dance with them because he gave up dancing for Lent. <laughs> so I don't know about you as a teenager, Andrew, Thaddeus, Ren. I gave up dancing for my teenage years, but <laughs> nothing to do with Lent. <laughs> but that's a funny I had story. girls give up on me <laughs> for dancing. <laughs> But if you had the opportunity to dance with a pretty girl when you were a teenager, would you have stopped if you had the chance? Uh, no, Andrew, sir. No. no. Yep. No. No. <laughs> so tell us about his education. What did he do for school? Sure. So he graduated high school, and then he enrolled into Clark Business School, but he only lasted a year. Did he get kicked out, or what, what happened? No, actually, a tragedy struck his family. His dad got very ill when he was 47 years old from liver failure. And the story goes that he came home to help and see what he could do to help his father. And his mom sent him out to grab some medicine. And while he was out, his dad passed away. Mm. He got back and it was too late. Now, Matt, you've done a lot of the reading on John Raskob. And I remember talking with you. You, you think that this is like really a pivotal kind of moment in his life and in his formation as a person, right? Tell yeah. us about what, what you think happened. Absolutely. I think it's kind of a twofold thing, but John's father's death set a pattern for Raskob that he kept for the rest of his life. When tragedy struck his family or friends, he put his head down and he moved forward as fast as he could. Hmm. Those close to him never fully understood him emotionally. 
just never fully was let into that. Hmm. I think the story goes that he couldn't save his dad, even though he couldn't do anything about it. Right. He couldn't save his dad. And this stuck with him for the rest of his life, that he was never going to be a few minutes short. Right. Because you feel like he somehow internalized that I didn't get there in time. I didn't, I literally didn't go fast enough to get the doctor to the house and that somehow I'm responsible for my, my father's death in some way. And so I need to just go hard all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Never be caught behind the eight ball in a sense. Yeah. And so he kind of did this. I mean, almost immediately, right? He went back to work. Yeah. As soon as his father passed away, he took over the role as patriarch of the family and he went to work supporting his family. His siblings actually called him dad and he called them kids, which Mm. I thought was kind of an interesting piece. Mm. So he went to work as a stenographer for $5 a week. I think we calculated that in inflation terms that it's about $158 a week now, <laughs> Yeah, which if we work that out to, you know, a yearly salary. That barely covers my cable bill. I mean, it's, I below, it's, yeah. below, it's below the poverty line today for a, for a single individual. Mm. Yep. Yep. And so after he went to work as this stenographer, he approached his boss and he asked for a raise. And when I say approached, he pestered the heck out of the guy. <laughs> For a raise. Some gumption. Yeah. And he, he got bumped to $7.50 a week. And then about a year later, he got tired of that and he went back to pestering his boss. And his boss finally went to him and said, what do you want, John? What do you want? And he said, I'd like 10 bucks, which, mm. you know, at the time was kind of the average salary of a family, of, of a working person at the time. But his boss was pissed. <laughs> and he said, if you want, if you want to get paid more than $7.50, you got to go somewhere else. And that's when he realized he hit the wall. Like he was done. There was no other upper movement. He didn't have any more opportunity in in Lockport. And so he was going to kind of go west, young man, so to speak. Absolutely. Do you have thoughts or comments to share with the show or ideas for future holy donor subjects? Send them to us, and your comments might be included in a season wrap party. Get in touch with us on Instagram, at Holy Donors. Hey, Matt. Yeah. So I know a couple years ago, you went through a pretty intensive weight loss program, right? I did. Yeah. So did you just wake up one day and the weight was gone? No. I put together a plan, and then I executed that plan, and I had people in place to keep me accountable. Yeah. And so I also know that you just recently successfully completed a $25 million plus capital campaign, right? We did, yes. Yeah, same thing. You just woke up and the money was there? No, not exactly. We uh, we did something very similar. We put together a plan, executed the plan, and we had a team around us that helped keep us accountable to that plan. And it just so happened to be it was Petrus. Yeah. So Petrus loved working with you on that project, and we work with organizations all over the place, Catholic parishes, nonprofits, campus ministries, high schools, middle schools, and that's what we do is we help to create a plan, execute on that plan, and then keep everybody accountable moving in the right direction. So if you're listening and your organization needs to do a capital campaign, build a new building, add staff, start an endowment, Go to PetrusDevelopment.com slash campaign to learn more about working with us. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. So in early 1900, Raskob took a job in Sydney, Nova Scotia for Arthur Moxham at Dominion Iron and Steel Company. 
There he demanded $80 a month. So if you remember, in Lockport, he basically got kicked out by his boss for asking for $10 a week, which is roughly $40 a month. (laughs) And so he doubled that in his next job application and asked for $80 a month or roughly $18.40 a week. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Matt, you're blowing me away with this this moxie that John Raskob has as such a young kid. So this is 1900, you're telling me. There's no internet, there's no television, there's not even, I mean, there's the beginnings of radio, but I mean, how's he finding out about a job in Nova Scotia and then he's going up there and demanding $80 a month? I mean, what gives? And we got to remember, he's still a teenager. Yeah. He's not really much of an adult at, at this point in time. So how he got to that point is he kind of went on a letter-writing spree, and he wrote a letter to a future person in our story we're going to tell. He was putting his steno skills to work. He was writing, he was. All, those, writing all those letters, right, all in steno? He was. He was. <laughs> and he had this moxie, this great moxie. And so he sent these letters to, to some business professionals, and it, it landed on the desk of another one. Not this Moxim gentleman, okay, but a different person, and they went back and forth till he basically said, "You know, I'm going to drop the bucket," and he handed these letters over to Moxham, and Moxham reached out to John and said, "Hey, wow, I need somebody, and uh, why don't you come a thousand miles away from home and come work for me?" You know, the other part of the Moxie story that you're telling too. Whenever he negotiated his job to work there. He negotiated first-class travel from Lockport, <laughs> New York, to Nova Scotia. Okay, try to answer this. I mean, where is this coming from in this in this kid? Like, who does he think he is? It's just the way he's wired. I mean, he's just... It's amazing. The, the more I dug into him, the more I realized that he is just wired to jump without seeing what's down below, to just jump. And he is successful after successful after successful. I mean, he's living he's living out that motto that you gave us of just go ahead and do things. I mean, he's living that out mm-hmm. from a very, very early age. Mm-hmm. Yes, he is. Okay, so it's clear that John is a man ahead of his times in many ways, right? <laughs> he's got this gumption and this moxie. Thaddeus, Dr. Thaddeus, maybe you can tell us <laughs> yeah. a little bit about what the world was like in 1900. What was this John is he's leaving Lockport he's going to Nova Scotia what was this wider world that John would have kind of been stepping into so to speak yeah okay so America at the turn of the last century you know it was really it's a country characterized by acceleration accelerating immigration accelerating industrialization accelerating urbanization and in this regard I think you know I think Raskob was really very much a man of his times the amount of manufacturing in the United States grew by a factor of four between 1860 and 1900, and then it would double again by 1919. Hmm. In 1900, there were about 400,000 automobiles manufactured. 20 years later, you've got 1.9 million coming off the production line. So he's in this incredibly yeah. dynamic economic moment, right? Yeah, things are just speeding up. Yes, and, and feeding each other, feeding right, itself. And, and isn't that perfect for a man whose motto is go out and do things, the bigger the better? I mean, he sounds like a man of the late 19th century, early 20th century America. So industrial manufacturing, that's going to mean the concentration of production in factories. 
and they need to be worked by enough skilled and unskilled laborers to rival the population of a small village. So non-agricultural employment increased from 4.3 million to almost 31 million between 1860 and 1920. The necessary industrial labor force, though, it's not coming primarily by Americans born in the country. What's happening? This is the age of the great immigration, right? Mm -hmm. It's the factories offering jobs that lured a great migration of people from across the world between 1900 and 1920, but most overwhelmingly from Europe. So again, accelerating industrialization, accelerating right. urbanization. Mm -hmm. And it, I mean, it creates an ecosystem, right? So it's not just these factory jobs, but then you have other jobs that are appearing of food vendors and people to clean clothes and more housing needs to be created. So it, you know, the steel and these factories are creating it, but it just, it creates this entire ecosystem of work that more people have to be employed to be able to do it. And that's a great point, Andrew, because that is an explanation for why we have this explosion of an urban population, because mm -hmm. we need those factories, they need that workforce to be relatively concentrated, and so hence you have these great urban centers created. So by 1920, Philadelphia, New York, Chicago were each metropolitan hubs with a million or more residents, and you've got nine other cities that have 500,000 or more people living in them. So we've got accelerated industrialization, urbanization, immigration, and with it, you get this accelerated concentration of capital in new business combinations. And Andrew, I think just like what you said, and Matt, you mentioned it earlier in the show, railroads, right? The railroads were like this ultimate synergistic mm. industry in that they had so much demand for lots of capital and lots of resources that they in turn forced all these other areas of the economy to just grow exponentially. So they're an expensive industry, and they've got this voracious appetite for capital, and that's, that's investment dollars for expansion and innovation. And one historian I came across when I was preparing my thoughts on this is said, because of their size and complexity and the sheer magnitude of their financial needs, the railroads burst the form of the individual or family-owned business, that, that cigar-making concern in the in the family's garage, right? That's out the window. Mm. And the railroads pioneer this new modern business form, the corporation, right? And corporations, they live on after the death of their founders. They limit investors' liability if the corporation fails. And they facilitate this creation of a expansive management mm. bureaucracy. And that's Raskob. That's what Raskob's going to be a part of is that management and that financial bureaucracy, right? So that hunger for capital was fulfilled through corporations selling stock ownership to individual investors, and this in turn needed a class of professional managers who want greater efficiency. They're looking at cost-cutting in order to maximize profits, dividends, and so they're always searching for new business organizations, new models of accounting, and it's within this new world, this new industrial world, and within that, the new spheres of corporate governance and accounting that our guy, John Raskob, do things bigger and better, go out and do things, do them faster. I mean, he is perfect for this world. You can see that, right, guys? Yeah. 
And going back to his earlier incident of his father dying, he almost may see, you know, we're projecting a little bit, but he may see that as a lost opportunity. He had the opportunity in his mind as a, what, a 19-year-old to save his dad, and he lost that opportunity. He, he wasn't able to accomplish that. He failed in a sense because, at least in his mind, because he wasn't able to run fast enough and get the doctor. And so here we have another opportunity where he probably, you know, he's witness to this world exploding and the corporatization, is that a word? Can I say that? It is. Okay. The world is becoming more corporate. And so he sees this opportunity and psychologically he's like, I got to jump in and I got to save this. So am I right, Matt? No, absolutely. This was the pivotal point of what took him out of Lockport. I mean, yeah, he got a job, but it was this specific job that defined his future career. It was at this moment. Right now, this was his turning point. Mm. Well, yeah. So what happens? He gets a crash course on business. So everything that comes to, to Moxham comes through his desk. And instead of just letting it go through or, or just doing it what he needed to do, he read every single document. Mm. And he absorbed every single document. And while he was doing that, he realized that these financial documents that he was reading made sense to him. And it was almost like this financial side of, of his genius started percolating, and he started getting more confidence in himself because mm. of that. Mm. So this is probably a very exciting time for John, right? Like he's figuring out, hey, I understand these numbers. I'm understanding mm-hmm. maybe I'm a little bit better than I've ever thought in terms of you know being a leader in the financial sector. He's reaching for higher status. He's outkicking his coverage. And he's really, Thaddeus, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but he's kind of breaking the mold for a Catholic worker in that age. Am I right? Oh, yeah. That's a that's a very keen observation, I think. Yeah, certainly going back to the middle of the 19th century, you know, you've got the great German and Irish streams of immigration first, and that's really farmers or unskilled laborers in large part, and they did not typically occupy positions of wealth or influence in the United States. Now, what you did see in some of the urban centers of the country, so think like Boston, think New York, think Philadelphia, Chicago, is you do see especially Irish Catholics gain influence by becoming precinct captains or ward bosses in the Democratic Party establishments Mm. of those cities. So that's going to figure in part of our story later. Mm -hmm. And also by predominating in those cities kind of fledgling municipal services. So the 19th century is also the great age of, you know, urban municipal services. So you get your first fire departments, your first police departments, you know, COPPA. That was good. That was good. (laughs) Water and garbage departments, for example. But really, it's otherwise it's immigrants moving west to try their hand at farming or stay in the Northeast and becoming the unskilled labor that, you know, operated those enormous steel smelters and mechanical lathes and oil refineries and railroads, et cetera, that that made the Industrial Revolution that I was, you know, just talking about a little while ago. So that is it kind of sounds like. Catholics were part of this like working class of the American populace, right? Yeah, exactly. That's exa- you hit the nail on the head there. So that working class sort of mold to the American Catholic experience is going to become even more so when you do get the great immigration of Eastern European and Southern European immigrants into the country starting in about 1890. So yeah, for a second generation uh, German Irish American like Raskov to be moving into a corporate white-collar profession like finance in, what, 1900? Yeah. 
Uh, that was extremely rare, and it does kind of break the mold. So, Matt, tell us what happens next to our friend John. So John is basically drinking from a fire hose of knowledge, getting a first-class business degree in the real world with Moxham. I mean, everything he sees, he's getting it, he's got it, and he's learning day after day and getting further and further advanced in his knowledge of that. But back home, he's a thousand miles away from his mom and his family, a family that his he refers to as his kids still supporting him. And his mom finally gets to him and says, John, I want you closer back home. And he finally gives in. And so earlier I teased a little story about a gentleman who passed along John's name to Moxham. This gentleman's name is Pierre DuPont. And he basically was very interested in getting John to come work for him, but then he just ghosted him, mm. just completely ghosted him, and then handed, without his knowledge, his stuff over to Moxham and went on from there. So when he started looking around again, he reached out to Pierre again and said, hey, I'd like to come work for you. And Pierre at that time was, was in need of somebody. And so he hired John to work for him again. And this was going to help him move back closer to his mom and his sisters? Yep. And so some things to note about this is his relationship with Raskob, Pierre DuPont's relationship with Raskob, and Raskob's relationship with Pierre DuPont was and would be the most influential relationship in John's life. Okay, so they were close, right? Real close, right? Didn't Raskob actually call Pierre daddy? Yes, he did call him daddy. It might sound kind of odd, and they weren't that far apart in age. You know, they were they were pretty close. But I think it might have had something to do with a life experience that both had that they both had in common. DuPont's father died suddenly in '84 from an industrial accident. Like Raskob, he was thrust into the position at the age of 14 of patriarch for his nine siblings. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting connection. So Pierre DuPont and John Raskob go and start working together. Mm -hmm. So John is Pierre's secretary, the exact same position he had with Moxham. And there's this really interesting financial deal that kind of comes out of that. Tell us more, Matt. <laughs> so it was the Lorraine Street Railway. Okay. So here's Pierre DuPont. They own this company, Lorraine Street Railway, and he's looking at some financial capital coming into the business. And so he lines up these investors to invest into the company, but he's got to, he's got to skip town. He's got to leave. And so he sets John Raskob up with the ability to sign the contracts. And he says, John, I want you to go to this meeting. I want you to sign it, get these guys in, we'll get their money, and it'll be a part of the business. And he takes off. So John, being John, anything worth doing, it's worth doing well and jumping without looking kind of, kind of John, looks at these documents, absorbs them, and realizes that these aren't really matching up as a great thing for Pierre DuPont to sign off on. Okay. So he finds out where these guys are staying and where they're eating, and he grabs a table next to these investors the night before they're supposed to sign the documents. They don't know who he is. He's just a complete stranger, yet he's eavesdropping on their conversation. <laughs> wow. Yeah, he's eavesdropping on their conversation. As he's listening to this conversation, he overhears them laughing about how they're about to make a steal in this investment. And this just sets off John Raskob's got-to-do-things-great radar. Mm -hmm. And he goes back, and 
looks and looks and looks. And the next morning he gets up, he shows up at the meeting, and these guys are late. Hmm. He folds up the documents and he books it out the back door and goes into basic hiding. What? Yeah, so he was supposed to sign these documents for his boss. These guys show up late. And he goes into hiding knowing that his boss will be mad. And, I mean, Johns he hasn't been working for DuPont for, like, years and years. I mean, he's still fairly new to the team, right? We're talking months, yeah. maybe. <laughs> okay. And a young guy at this point still. Yeah, he, I don't know if he's a, if he, he may still be a teenager. If not, he's early, early 20s. So he knew that Pierre would make him sign the documents with these investors. But he thought he could find a better investor. So he goes into hiding over the weekend. The investors reach out to Pierre. Pierre finds out Pierre is pissed. And he's trying to find John. Can't find John. But John lines up these investors, okay? These new investors that are going to give a substantially more to get a piece of this railway company. And remember when I said that Pierre DuPont gave him the authority to sign the document with the first investors. Mm -hmm. Well, he still had this authority, but it didn't have to be with just the first investors. (laughs) So he used the authority and he signed the document with these second guys. Not the first ones, but the second ones. This sounds like a Hollywood story. Yeah. This is incredible. Yeah. And so signs the document and he shows up to work. And I'm imagining this and how this would be in my mind. I I don't have any factual truth to this. Mm -hmm. But I imagine he throws open the front doors and he's just waltzing in, you know, on cloud nine to drop these documents down on Pierre's desk. And when he goes in, Pierre is pissed. And he reams them up one side down the other side. And gives him the what for. So it kind of sounds like he's about to get fired. It does sound like he's about to get fired. (laughs) Wait. So you said that Pierre DuPont and John Raskob were besties. He called him daddy. And yet he's about to get fired. How does this match up? (laughs) You're going to have to tune into the next episode to figure that one out. (laughs) Cliffhanger. Okay. All right. We'll see you next episode. Can't wait. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Holy Donors, brought to you by Petrus Development in cooperation with Red Sea Catholic Radio and Backrow Media. Theme music by Tommy Kibb, Third Top Productions, graphics by 86 Creative. If you like us, leave us a review, share us with your friends, and check us out at holydonors.com and on Instagram, at holydonors. Holy Donors, bringing you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. Make it sound pretty. Yeah. He got a new haircut for this podcast, so we want to make sure his voice is pretty. And hey, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. YouTube, are we going to have YouTube? We do have YouTube. Subscribe on YouTube. But don't come to us for help losing weight. Just raising money. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Are you going to be able to put all this together? Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs>